Hello everyone, welcome to Conversations with the Co-op. This is where we source questions from the Index Co-op community to gain insights from today's leaders in crypto and DeFi. And today's leader in crypto and DeFi is Evan Van Ness with Week in Ethereum News. Evan, how's it going? Thanks for being here with us today. Yeah, it's good to be here. It's going, it's going okay. I'm yeah. Sitting here, sitting, sipping my mate, feeling good. Yeah, I saw that on Twitter. You said that you took a break from caffeine for a while. What, what was up with that, man? That's a good question. You, you broke up there for a little bit, but I think you asked what was up with me quitting caffeine. That's a, you know, I don't know exactly how to answer that, except to say that, you know, I think that like modern society acts like caffeine isn't a drug and I think that's crazy. And I mean, you know, I, I do, consume a fair bit of caffeine uh you know i i spent a decent amount of time in argentina so i started drinking the tea uh down there called mate and you know i drink that pretty much every day um but you know i don't know i don't think we should act like it isn't a drug and i think especially if you try to quit it like i periodically do you find out that it is in fact definitely a drug but yeah why don't you just uh tell us just a little bit about your background and how did you get into crypto? Yeah, so uh, there's a lot of ways I could answer that. I think one way is to say that I'm sort of libertarianish and read a lot of things on the internet, as you as you might have guessed, given that I publish a newsletter that requires me to read a lot of things on the internet. <laughs> uh, so uh, I believe I had Satoshi's Bitcoin white paper open before the chain launched because, as I recall, he, he published it like four or five months before the chain launched. Um, but, you know, I wasn't really that interested because, frankly, like the tech was a little bit over my head for just skimming it uh, quickly. And there have been a lot of these libertarian fantasies about, you know, an Internet currency. You know, that's originally what PayPal was, of course, back in like 99, 2000. And then they found that was too hard to do. So they, you know, gave up and transitioned to PayPal. Anyway, so I more or less was following Bitcoin from the start. I never owned any because, you know, the whole thing I say about Bitcoin being a meme coin is, you know, basically what I thought from the start um, and never really had a, a reason to, to, to deviate from. I've always been interested in investing and, and I'm sort of like a, a cash flow, fundamental value kind of guy. And so Bitcoin was never going to be it for me. But I thought the technology was really interesting. And I thought that eventually there was going to be something that was, you know, going to be going to obsolete Bitcoin. And so, you know, I was sort of like following sort of like the values of the Bitcoin community in the early days and watching the, the new tech that came out. Um, and we sort of some a lot of these have been forgotten to time, but you know there was what was it called MadeSafe and NXT and and Mastercoin and all of those things like which all basically seemed a little shady to me, uh, and I totally skipped. Uh, and then this this sixty year old Russian PhD whose articles I'd been reading in Bitcoin Magazine for a while started talking about Ethereum. And that's when I found out that this 60-year-old Russian PhD was actually this 18-year-old Canadian kid living in the basement. <laughs> so Vitalik uh, started talking about Ethereum, and basically I had, I had heard about it uh, you know, in the very early days. Um, and uh, actually, I think the person that originally told me about it 
was before the before Vitalik sent out the white paper because uh, he was talking to people about it. And this guy, of course, became a Bitcoin maximalist. But, you know, that's how it goes, I guess. Who was that guy? Uh, you know, some random guy, actually a Texan, uh, lived in Austin, um, but a random guy on a message board. Okay. I mean, I could probably guess, but I won't speculate on who it is. Uh, so no, I mean, it was, it was, a. I don't, I don't remember the guy's name. Oh, okay. I don't even remember the guy's screen name, to be honest with you. Um, this was like a message for long ago. I actually did bet on politics with this guy at one point and won like a hundred bucks, uh, about a Texas, uh, the Texas governor's race. <laughs> and so I think I found out his name at one point, but yeah, I don't remember. So you're, what are your thoughts on the whole Bitcoin as a digital gold narrative then? Yeah, I mean, to me, Bitcoin is is a meme coin. And, um, you know, to be fair, like gold is kind of a meme. So you could sort of say that about gold, too. Um, but I'm like, although I'm pretty libertarian, like I'm not a gold bug at all. Like I said, I prefer like assets with fundamental value. So, um you know, I think that's like a good a good meme. Um, you know, it can probably cruise some value in the short term. I think it's not really gold though, because I mean gold is more or less sustainable, right? Like there's you know, unless like we find something on on asteroids or whatever, it's relatively scarce. You know, we we pull some a little bit out of the ground every year. But the problem is Bitcoin is not that. Like Bitcoin has these, you know, the the halvings every few years, um, but eventually, like that is an untenable monetary policy, and uh, eventually, like like it's a house that's built on sand, and uh, you know, as the as the ratio of transaction fees to block rewards decline, the the chain is unstable because we're going to see the incentive change for miners to reorg the chain. And a good example of this was when Binance got hacked in, I believe it was summer of 2019. And, you know, CZ was talking to miners about rolling back the chain like four hours back, if not, if not longer. And it was such a, you know, it was such a big enough transaction. I think it was 5,000 Bitcoin or 4,000 Bitcoin that it was actually worth entertaining for some miners that, well, what if, you know, he double signed, they double signed a transaction and the miners included that one and that became the, the, the new, you know, the new canonical chain. Um, I mean, basically that showed like exactly why this is going to be a problem in the future, because when you have big transactions like that uh, and the, tra and the transaction fees are what, what miners get revenue from, you're going to see a lot of chain instability. So, I mean, look, nobody knows, right? Like, but personally, I don't, you know, I don't think Bitcoin is really digital gold when we know that it's going to be unstable over the long run. And we're basically just guessing when everybody else realizes it. Okay, that's interesting. So you're kind of saying that solely the transaction fee won't be enough to secure the network once those block rewards get too, I guess, too small? Right. Well, so it's not it's not just that. Transaction fees, uh, are, I mean, 
they're probably not enough right now. I mean, they aren't enough right now to secure the network, right? Mm. You know, block rewards are much, much larger. But it's not just the amount of transaction fees, it's the actual ratio of transaction fees to block rewards. And as, as, as miners make more of their revenue from transaction fees, their incentives to reorgan, reorganize the network to make more money. So the, maybe I didn't, a thing that I missed there is that CZ could have, the double sign transaction could have been basically, I give the entire 4,000 Bitcoin, double, I double sign a transaction for the stolen 4,000 Bitcoin or whatever it was. I double sign that and I give half of it to miners, right? Um, in return for getting 2,000 back. And if he'd done that, right? Well, I mean, the incentive, especially as the block reward declines for a miner, becomes very strongly to reorg the chain. Yeah, that that makes sense to me. And we'll we'll stay on Bitcoin just for like a couple more questions, and then we'll move on. But um, do you think that like the Lightning Network adds any additional value to the Bitcoin network? Uh, even regardless of, of what you were just saying there. And I, I saw that you know, there was this whole Bitcoin has smart contracts now thing. And I, I didn't really look too much into it because I was out of town the past couple days. How true is that statement uh, for what research you've done on that? If you've done any. So I, I assume that the Bitcoin has smart contracts uh, thing is either because Taproot is adding something uh, that enables some of the script that Satoshi put in in the paper originally, um, or it's one of these centralized things like Rootstock, which are you know federated, meaning like it's a it's a multi-sig basically um, on top of Bitcoin, um, which is you know like I said they're centralized like Liquid or a rootstock, um, certainly not nearly decentralized as something like Ethereum. Um, if it's about the the script that's being added in in Bitcoin's Taproot fork, you know, um, it's not meaningful in any way, as far as I can figure out. I mean, you know, you could argue sort of that Bitcoin already has smart contracts because you know they have decent multi stakes. If you consider that a contract which you sort of can, then, you know, Bitcoin already has smart contracts. So, yeah, you know, I, Bitcoin is not, Bitcoin is not going to have smart contracts at any point. I mean, it, you know, it took them five years, four or five years just to do this, this thing, right? They've been talking about Schnorr signatures for at least four years. I mean, I remember somebody telling me excitedly about how, Schnorr sigs were great, and it was, you know, it, it wasn't true that Bitcoin was stagnating in 2017. And, you know, they're just now in September of 2021 getting around to updating Schnorr sigs. So, uh, you know, I would say that's, you know, basically a non starter. As to Lightning, you know, I don't know, people like think I'm a Bitcoin hater, I guess. I mean, I generally would say I root for Lightning just because I root for all, you know, tech to work. State channel networks are really, really hard. And I think that in, in a lot of ways, some basically a Ethereum people would say that rollups obsolete state channel networks because it's simply a better design. 
Of course, Bitcoin can't do rollups right now. They could if they if they added some basic simple things, but you know, again, we just said it took them five years to do to do Schnorr sigs. So I you know I wouldn't expect that soon, if ever. Um, but you know, I fundamentally like Lightning. I mean, who really wants to use Lightning? Or you know, if you like the the meme is that Bitcoin is digital gold. Well, I mean, who spends their gold? You know. If you think Bitcoin's going to go up, like, why do you want to transact with it to, like, buy pizza uh, over Lightning, even if it is a great user experience, which it's it's not. And I'm pretty sure there's still some pretty fundamental insecurities around DOSing and whatnot. But even if it were to be a great user experience that was easy to use, I still just don't think that, like, you know, by and large, people want to use it. We'll see. I mean, you know, state channel networks are really hard to do to do well. Yeah, and so let's transition and talk about some other chains because I've I've seen you use the term, I think it's either zombie chain or ghost chain on Twitter, and I, I think it's I think it's a perfect term too, by the way. Uh, but can you explain what that term means to you, and maybe provide some examples of what a, a zombie or ghost chain is? Yeah, so I originally the original tweet was about ghost chains, and it was a paper by Daniel Perez and I think maybe some other people. Uh, and it basically uh, it was about the it was about Ripple, EOS, and Tezos, and it's basically examining you know sort of like the, the hype around you know these typed up chains that supposedly had higher throughput than Ethereum. And basically he, he looked at the data and he found that, I mean, I'm going to forget what the exact figures are now, but basically like XRP, it was like 80% or 85% of all transactions were like zero economic value. Like it was basically like somebody spamming the chain to look, to look like it was, it was busy. Same thing with EOS basically as well. You know, it was people spamming the chain to make it, it seem like there was use on it, but there wasn't really. And then Tezos, it was that there was no use at all, but they're, they, they use something like, you know, again, I don't remember the numbers right now, but I think it was like 70% of all of their quote unquote transactions per second are for their consensus. So they're, they're baking their variant of, of DPoS. And so, you know, basically it was saying like these chains are claiming they have high throughput, but they don't really have high throughput and nobody's using them. And, you know, I read the paper and, you know, it sort of fit what I already, already thought. <laughs> so I came up with the chart with the term ghost chains and tweeted this paper out and uh, tried to get the, the term ghost chains popularized. Um, and then I sort of changed it into zombie chains later when uh, I looked at, this is maybe like five or six months later, I looked at the, it's like the top seven chains outside of Bitcoin and Ethereum uh, by market cap at that time. And basically none of them had any use. Like, um, so I forget exactly what the list of the seven was at that time that I called the zombie chains, but it was, it was literally just the top seven things after Bitcoin and Ethereum. And they were all just chains that, you know, had you know, billion dollar valuations, but absolutely no use. And I, I think now in the bull market, that's not exactly true, right? So, you know, at the time it included things like Litecoin and Bitcoin Cash, which I believe actually, you know, bull markets have a way of, you know, 
reviving some of these zombies and making them seem a little bit more alive than they actually are. So I think like Bitcoin Cash and 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 Litecoin have some use. But then there's stuff like Cardano that now has like an $80 billion market cap. And, you know, it still has like 70,000 transactions per day. And like, you know, that's that's really like nothing. You know, we have in Ethereum layer two, like Arbitrum having been live for, you know, two weeks is already doing, uh, you know, like 200,000 transactions per day. Uh, it was 150 last I checked, but it, it, it kept going up. So I assume it's more like 200 now. So, you know, I mean, these things, to me, it's absolutely crazy. You know, we have like, how is Cardano worth, you know, $100 billion when it has like <laughs> less than 100,000 transactions per day? It's insane. But you know, I don't know. This is a weird, weird frontier technology where, you know, things pump off of hype and, uh, you know, to be fair, like I'm, I'm kind of old, so I remember like the the mid to late '90s, and there was a lot of this in the mid to late '90s. I remember Mark Cuban, like in the early 2000s, telling a story about how he had gone long with leverage, I think, on some some company that built like I forget what, like routers or something, and and then he sold it because it went up like 100x, and he did the math, and he was like. You know, the if they if they if they took a hundred percent market share of of this thing and it grew by you know ten x every year over the over the next x years, it still wouldn't be worth what it is now. <laughs> and I think we see some of that in in the space where stuff that just like you know had zero zero in fundamental value is still worth a hundred billion dollars. Yeah, that makes sense to me. And on Cardano, because we had a, a question here, uh, do you know of any teams that are building on Cardano, or, or like any, or just anyone at all? I guess. I guess there are builders over there, but are you aware of like any reputable or known teams building over there? I think they have recruited like the Wolfram Alpha guys to some extent. I'm not really sure. Anything more about that, just besides the fact that Ada bots sort of spam that in my mentions whenever they want to tell me how great uh, Cardano is. Um, you know, I think Wolfram seems like an interesting technical idea. I'm skeptical that it ever becomes a real thing. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. Yeah. It, it seems like a sort of fit for Cardano. Let me put it that way. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So what you're saying is when people spam you in the replies, uh, you are paying attention. So you, you should be careful with that. Yeah, I mean, I I say that like I mute basically everyone that that spams my reply. So I might see it once, but I won't see it the second time. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Yeah. So what? So outside of Ethereum, like what other L1s? or layer one blockchains do you see that are uh, actually adding value or that, or what can an L1 do in your mind to like truly differentiate itself from the Ethereum blockchain? Yeah, that's a good question. What is, I, let me start with what is adding value? You know, Cosmos is, is interesting. I've never held any of it or anything, but I mean, they have a good tech team. They, you know, they, they're doing interesting stuff. Personally, like, my view of the world is not going to be that we have like 
I mean, I would say sort of like Ethereum's view of the world is that Ethereum ends up being the global settlement layer where, you know, everything sort of anchors down and uh, all of the layer twos settle on Ethereum. And, it, you know, it's sort of a trust layer for for the world, for the finance system, for, you know, for the Internet. Um, we're obviously a long ways away from that. Um, but I think we're starting to see it happen, especially with you know, layer two solutions starting to take off like Arbitrum and, and Optimism. Cosmos's view of the world is more like, you know, we're going to build out the new web, like web three will be millions of blockchains. And you know, I don't know, I used to be a consultant and, you know, the, the whole like ETL of getting, you know, millions of different databases to talk to each other, like that sounds awful to me. And, um, you know, I don't know, I'm not, that's, that's not my vision of, something that would make sense really taking off is like quote unquote web three or, or anything like that. Also one thing, you know, is they, they use Cosmos uses Tendermint and Tendermint is, I believe it's still limited to like a hundred validators. So it's not nearly as decentralized as Ethereum. And it's one thing that I think most people don't understand and Ethereum hasn't marketed very well. And I've had a couple tweets about it, but I think it's so out there that my tweets about it don't really take off either, is that Ethereum staking is basically the only decentralized staking because it uses BLS signatures, uh, which basically just allows for a massive number amount of validators. And you know, no other blockchain uses BLS signatures, so they're just not nearly as decentralized. And you know, I think that's really a fundamentally undervalued thing. Let's see. Uh, what else is interesting to me? I'm, I, you know, I'm, I, have, I was in, a seed investor in Near, and I think Near is really interesting. You know, there's not a ton of things built on it now. It's not very decentralized now. I mean, I think it's probably more on the order of Cosmos, maybe even not as decentralized as Cosmos in terms of even 100 validators. But, you know, their, their tech team is really good. Uh, they're really good at like the developer experience. So, I mean, it's a slick, it's a slick product to use. I think even more so than some of the centralized chains, there's just not a ton to do on it yet. And other chains. Yeah. Nier is really cool. Um, the, you know, one thing is I'm pretty sure they're still async only. So like they kind of lack composability, which gives them some some flexibility in, in the way they architect their chain. But of course, like, you know, one of the great things about Ethereum is composability. So, you know, they can they can get away from that, like using rollups, sort of like Ethereum is. But um, yeah, I think the other part of your question was about, you know, what there are other good teams in, in tech. I mean, Definity has a good team. It's sometimes really hard to determine, like, how good the tech is because uh, they have so many buzzwords in their marketing that, like, you know, it's difficult to really figure out. Mm. But, I mean, I think it's basically federated AWS. Uh, so, you know, it's AWS, but, you know, slightly more decentralized, but just sort of an, an M of N multi-sig. Um, that's at least the best I can, best way I can come up with to describe it. Um, but it's kind of an interesting thing. One one last thing I think I wanted to say here uh, is that 
uh, Filecoin, Near, and Cello all had some version of one five five nine run live and running on their networks before before Ethereum uh, instituted it, and I think that's a good, you know, compelling case where you know good tech teams can do interesting things and. You know, it can be value accretive for Ethereum and for all of blockchain. So, you know, that's cool. Yeah, that's really interesting. I didn't know that about Filecoin and, and Celo. Um, and then what? Oh, Nier actually does something interesting as well, okay. which I think is worth talking about. Which is, they they give they run a modified version of one five five nine, where they give the contract author that uh, some portion of the burn. So instead of just burning it, I think they burn like, I don't remember exactly the percent, but they maybe give half of what, what is burned in Ethereum, they give to the contract deployer. So I think it's a really interesting mechanism because you know, if you write a contract that gets used a lot on Near, you're going to get paid as, as the contract. Now, the, I actually don't think it's... I think it's a really interesting thing to try. I'm personally quite skeptical that it is really a good idea long term, and I wouldn't be surprised if Near gets rid of it in long term, because, you know, in the early days of Ethereum, like until we really saw a lot of more like interesting things get deployed, like DeFi, we saw a lot of Ponzi's, and some of them were like written like you know, like look, this is a Ponzi, like don't put your money into it, like I'm just having fun, like deploying code or whatever. <laughs> Um, but, you know, we did see some take off around the world and get to like large, large amounts, even in like 2015, 2016. And I would say that, you know, the downside is, is that those people like would have gotten even richer off of their Ponzi. <laughs> so it, it's almost like a game changer for Ponzi's, right? Like you could write a Ponzi that somehow, you know, didn't give all the money to yourself, but you could still get rich off of it because of because of you know getting gas fees off of this modified one five five nine. Uh, so it's sort of a game changer for Ponzi creators in that in that sense. So you know I don't know. I, that's that's why I think it's probably not a good idea long term. But it's an interesting thing to try, and I'm curious to see how the results play out. Yeah, I can see how that would be a good idea and a good way to like drive development to your layer one. But yeah, kind of like what you said, you know, it, game theory kind of comes into play and it's like, well, you know, if I can just get a whole lot of transactions off my Ponzi code that I deploy, um, yeah, why I, it could just bring a lot of Ponzi's over there too in the hopes of getting rich, which, I mean, could benefit other chains in a, in a weird way, I guess. But do you feel like, it's, I mean, side chains are great, you know, like the Avalanche, uh, C chain, and then we've got Polygon too. I kind of want to get your thoughts on those. And do you feel like rollups are the more superior long-term execution layer for uh, Ethereum? Yeah, so one interesting thing about sidechain is that there's no great definition. Um, so, you know, layer two, we have a, a pretty workable definition, which is that it's basically something that inherits the trust probabilities of the layer one. So an optimistic rollup... Um, you know, when they've burned some of their upgrade keys and their, you know, um, and whatnot. Um, so there is that small caveat, but like essentially a, a, a roll up 
uh, inherits the, the trust properties of Ethereum. So by by doing a transaction, by putting your money on on Arbitrum or something like that, you you basically you are using Ethereum because the actual data exists on Ethereum. They're publishing the data to Ethereum chain. They're just doing the transaction. They're doing the execution on the rollup chain. But side chains are a little bit more blurry, and there is you know sort of this spectrum of you know what is a side chain. You know, it uh, you, you mentioned Avalanche and and Polygon. You know, basically anything that has a bridge to Ethereum is a side chain. And the thing is, is that not all bridges are created. Near actually probably has the best, most trustless bridge out there, uh, which hasn't gotten a lot of press. It was designed by uh, the CTO of One Inch, Anton Bukov, and it basically involves light clients running on the Near and the ETH chains. So it's a pretty cool design. Whereas, like most sidechain bridges are literally just federated, as in, you know, four out of seven signers, which, you know, it's not really decentralized. And it is, you know, you are trusting quite a bit of, of you know, of people not getting their keys compromised and people not deciding to pull the rug on you, things like that. So, you know, I would say there's a big, a big thing between between side chains and layer twos. And yeah, layer twos are ultimately, you know, the the vision for Ethereum. But, you know, side chains aren't necessarily, you know, there's nothing wrong with being a side chain, especially, you know, the more trustless the bridge is, uh, you know, the better. Yeah. All right. Kind of want to switch over to like some of the regulatory stuff that's been going on lately. Uh, you know, I think Coinbase Lynn just announced that they're actually not going to deploy that product anymore uh, due to some SEC investigations. And I mean, SEC is still going after XRP uh, and I think BlockFi as well. I just kind of wanted to get your take on just kind of what's been going on in the U.S. from a regulatory standpoint. Yeah, I sort of tweeted this the other day, um, but it was probably buried in, in a thread, which is that. What I really think the SEC is trying to do is talk the market down because they feel like crypto has gone up a lot. And so they are trying to pop the bubble. And, uh, you know, we sort of saw that in 2018. And actually, some of the, you know, the SEC and, and CFTC guys sort of took credit for it. Hey, look, we popped a look how great we were. And I think that's frankly what Gensler is doing because, you know, he still hasn't beaten XRP, and I think XRP is like pretty clearly a security under you know existing U.S. common law. And frankly, like even Coinbase's Lend project product is probably a security as well. And you know the, what's a shame there is that like the SEC is has not filed enforcement actions against any of these centralized lending platforms. And instead, they're like doing it by going after Coinbase, who's trying to do things the right way, but the SEC isn't even letting them compete. But meanwhile, they haven't gone after competitors to the to Coinbase's Lend product, you know, stuff like BlockFi and Celsius and and whatnot. 
Now, we can argue over whether these like securities laws make sense in, you know, 2021 world, you know, yada, 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 yada. I'm relatively libertarian. So like um, I have like kind of mixed feelings about a lot of these things, but like the laws do exist. And if you are a regulator, then, you know, it is your job to enforce them. So I can't, you know, you can't, I personally can't let too much for that. But, you know, I don't know. It would be nice if the SEC and just, I think, you know, the U.S. in general has sort of failed to do any sort of solid thinking regulation on all of this. Whereas, you know, Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich in the 90s, you know, basically adopted a sort of like hands-off policy with the, they said like, you know, no taxation for, they passed like until for like five or 10 years, I think, um, first, and then that got extended. And I think ultimately, like we've seen that play out as being, you know, a really a big boom for boon for the U S which benefited, you know, the U S quite a lot in the long term by bringing in a lot of tech people from around the that, you know, build companies in the U S and pay taxes here. I think we're sort of seeing the opposite with this, you know, currently is, you know, if you are going to build a DeFi project, probably better off either leaving the U.S. or going anon because, you know, it's really unclear what the SEC is going to do to you. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, and I've seen like a lot of people on Twitter say things like, oh, he taught blockchain at, at MIT. He should be on our side. And I, I think what it comes down to is like he's a regulator. Like that's his job. So I, he can't go out there and he can't say like, Oh, you know, crypto, there's nothing we can do, really. Uh, he's got to do something. You know, that's that's his job, literally. He will get fired if he doesn't. Uh, he's also an ex-Goldman Sachs guy who, you know, really wanted to regulate post-Dodd-Frank. He was in charge of the CFTC and really wanted to over-regulate all of those markets. And, you know, generally speaking... People like Goldman Sachs end up benefiting when with a lot of regulations because they can pay for the lawyers and the lobbyists uh, to deal with all this stuff. But it's everyone else that can't pay for the lawyers and the lobbyists who doesn't benefit. Yeah. So do you think that is there any type of regulation that you think the crypto industry could benefit from and just kind of using like the open sea uh, kind of insider training thing that's happened recently as an example. Like, do we need some sort of regulation from like an insider trading standpoint? Is that a big issue in the space? Or do you think we could self-regulate? Or is it just, we don't need it at all? Yeah, that's a, a good question that is uh, difficult for someone low-finish like myself. The one thing I would say about OpenSea is that like, it was really... Unfortunate. I'm not really that clear on the details, but we're not actually talking about like a huge amount of money. Like, I think he made 19 ETH, which of course is like, you know, $60,000 at, at, right now. I mean, it's a lot of money for like an, indi an individual, but it's not like he was running like massive, you know, scam that made him millions and millions of dollars. Like the, the, it was, 
completely disproportionate how much media attention it got of, you know, inside insider trading compared to the fact that it was only $60,000. You know, there are many, many more scams pulled off in the space every day that are much, much man, magnitudes more than $60,000. So like, you know, I don't, even if, like I said, I'm not really familiar with the details. I'm sure that I'm confident that, you know, he was doing some things that he shouldn't have been doing. But like, I don't know. I also don't want to like tar and feather the guy for other forever. In terms of like things that people do in crypto, I mean, frankly, I think there's, well, there's a saying in politics, the scam is what's legal or, you know, the scandal is what's legal is usually the the phrase. And I feel like in some ways that's the case in crypto. Like, I mean, frankly, like I think about these like zombie chains or centralized chains that are worth like tens of billions of dollars and you have these funds that are shilling them hard when like their long-term future is probably zero and you know they're gonna make tens or hundreds of millions of dollars on these frankly like which is worse you know sixty thousand dollars or tens or hundreds of millions you know one is arguably is like blatantly against the spirit of the law but i think the other is pretty bad too so i don't, don't want to like tar and feather the guy he made a mistake you know he has to deal with the consequences as for like regulation i mean i think it's pretty clear that crypto has failed to self-regulate itself i mean like i said like all these zombie chains that are worth like billions tens of billions almost 100 billion is, is crazy so you know for libertarians or, or even not libertarians, but people who believe in the efficient market hypothesis, in any way, crypto is a little bit of a, of a challenge to that. <laughs> I would count myself among those people that like that you know believe in some form of the efficient markets hypothesis. So um, I find it sort of uh, insulting or challenging to to like crypto in that way because there's so many market irrationalities that it's, uh, it's frustrating. Yeah, I think that we could do a good transition here into just privacy in general. Uh, like how important do you think privacy is in DeFi? And like, I guess like in another sense, like are, are you a fan of like apps like Tornado Cash or uh, like Zcash? Or uh, not that that's a ad, separate blockchain and like Zcash and Monero and then like the app Tornado Cash. Like what are your thoughts there and how important is that? Yeah, financial privacy in the West, at least, and I probably it's just as bad in, in or it's probably worse in China, I guess, um, given, uh, you know, what I understand about WeChat and how it's used as a as a social engineering tool. Uh, you know, arguably. The U.S. has basically outlawed cash these days. I get some pushback when I say that sometimes because it hasn't explicitly outlawed cash, but the United States has essentially implicitly outlawed cash. Like any any amount that you hold over, you know, like a few hundred bucks, if if the police pull you over and find, you know, a few thousand dollars even on you in cash, they will take it. <laughs> I mean, it's sort of insane, right? Like they will literally just take it and you basically can't get it back until, unless you can somehow prove like and the burden of proof is on you that you can prove that it's yours and that it's legitimate. 
I mean, which is, you know, not like an easy thing to do, right? Like, how do I prove that something is legitimate? Like, I show that I just took it out of the bank, maybe? I mean, and of course, even to cross borders, you can't cross borders with more than like $10,000 in cash. You can't get on a plane with more than $10,000 in cash. Uh, there are some like exceptions and whatnot there, but um, it's essentially been made illegal. And there's uh, the the Biden administration, or maybe it's the House Democrats, but they're pushing for it to go even more draconian to where like a bank would have to report. So right now a bank has to report anytime that you, that you do any sort of bank deposit of $10,000 in cash or more or withdrawal. And or if they think that you are close to $10,000 and they find that suspicious, basically. <laughs> and the, the, there's proposed regulations to make that even worse. You know, I think this is crazy. Like, I think our money laundering regime has totally failed. I mean, we still see plenty of money laundering around the world. We, you know, they're constantly finding banks, you know, crazy amounts of money for all this stuff. But meanwhile, like normal people have no financial privacy whatsoever because like, you know, we, we're not even allowed to use cash in any, in any amount. I think it's terrible. I think this whole like financial privacy loss is real. And I mean, frankly, it angers me whenever I have to do my taxes, right? Like, uh, I mean, I'm libertarianish, so I generally would prefer the amount of taxes that I pay to be lower almost no matter what they are. But what really angers me is that I have to spend so much time trying to tell the government how much money I owe them when the government already knows this. And if I get it wrong, then they threaten to, they, they give me fines or they send me to jail. Like, it's crazy. I mean, it's like a, a backwards world, right? Anyway, yeah, I, I think financial privacy really matters. And, you know, of course, it's hard to get people to care about it. And, you know, because people don't care about any of that, like, same with decentralization until until they need it. But I think the you know the success of Bitcoin and Ethereum has proved that there are people out there that care about decentralization. As to like privacy apps on on Ethereum and crypto in general, you know, Zcash and Monero have you know not done too well. Um, you know, like their their assets, they aren't used. Frankly, Zcash, I looked this up the other day. Zcash has 4,000 transactions per day, which is, I mean, that's like zombie of zombie chains. And what's worse is that I didn't check this recently, but last time I had checked, something like 95% of Zcash's transactions were not private. So the actual like amount of private transactions on Zcash is very low. Uh, even today, I'm quite confident. Monero is is better in that it's always private transactions, but uh, there are known attacks on Monero that you know people can pull off. So their level of privacy is not nearly as good as Zcash's. Um, you know the thing people say about private blockchains like like Zcash and Monero is that it's a feature and not a chain, and I think there's a lot of truth to that. On the other hand, I think Monero and Zcash, as I just said, they both have some particularities that are, I mean, preclude being too confident that, you know, a private blockchain couldn't have some success. It's just that, like, the current blockchains, you know, private blockchains, one, isn't really that private against a, you know, 
determined, especially determined state actor. And the other one just doesn't have any private transactions. So no, I think it sort of remains to be seen. Financial privacy is really important. It's great to see the tornado cash has, has picked up and has some use. You know, of course, that has seen a decent amount of like, you know, illicit use of of hackers that are, you know, laundering their money through there of you know, some people doing dubious things. You know, look, a lot of early technology is used by, you know, things that society would consider less than, you know, the most socially beneficial. But in the long run, privacy is really important and Tornado Cash gives us that. So it's great. Maybe that was a lot of words to say. Yeah, Tornado Cash is great and financial privacy is is really useful. So, you know, no, that's yay, Tornado. Yeah, no, that's great. Yeah, I appreciate your, your thoughts and insights on that. And uh, I don't know, I guess moving to something that is quite a bit less private and probably something a little more fun and less serious of a topic is the, the metaverse. Um, like, how involved are you in the metaverse? Uh, what are your thoughts on it? Like, do you have any PFPs or what kind of NFTs do you have, if any? Yeah, so like I said, I'm sort of a fundamental value kind of guy. So I do not buy any of this stuff. Uh, I have a moon cat that Bucky gave to me and that's it, which I think is actually worth a, a decent amount of money now, um, especially because I think moon cats is going into either Sotheby's or, or Christie's in the next month, I think they announced. And, you know, it's an, it's an interesting little, you know, NFT, you know, it was before CryptoKitties. It was the first cat on Ethereum. Um, but yeah, in general, I'm not really into into art. So I'm not into crypto art either. In terms of the metaverse, I don't have a VR headset. Uh, I've never gotten around to it. Uh, I've thought about it a few times, but I don't want to give Facebook even more data than they already have. So I haven't done that either. So yeah, I you know I think the metaverse is is a cool idea. You know I read Snow Crash uh, like like many people, and I look forward to the day. Uh, the last I used a VR headset, it, you know it was something I wanted to get, but then I didn't want to get it enough to give Facebook more data. So I'm sure there's I'm sure it's going to happen eventually. I'm not sure it's that soon, but you know we'll see. I've been wrong before. Yeah, that's it. So what other what other apps on Ethereum or projects in general like do you have your eye on? Or what's what's making you think, huh, like should I should I ape into this? Or like I don't know, just kinda what what's catching your eye these days? Yeah. Good question. I'm I mean, I'm really excited about roll ups. Um, we didn't we didn't talk about Aztec, but Aztec has a roll up where you can do private transactions. So you can do private transactions for cheaper than mainnet because um, it's a roll-up and it's pretty cool. Um, you know, it's one of those things I think more people should be using. It's also one of those things where I think everyone that's using these roll-ups is probably going to be rewarded because a lot of them are going to have tokens and a lot of them are going to be giving out tokens to early users. So you should be using rollups. I, you know, it's cool to see the number of things that are deploying onto Arbitrum and Optimism. 
you know, at the moment, Arbitrum is, is uh, they're all doing staged rollouts, but Arbitrum is more live, uh, more open than Optimism. And, you know, there's a ton of things in there. So using apps on there, of course, like the early days, it's a lot of, frankly, you know, like trading was the first things to, to roll out to these. Um, but it's pretty cool, you know, like, frankly, a lot of people look at crypto and just see a casino and that's how they use it. But it's pretty cool to be able to, you know, use one of these massive leverage exchanges that's decentralized and truly decentralized rather than, you know, BitMEX or FTX or, you know, one of those things where, you know, frankly, a lot of people think that the founders of those chain exchanges are trading against you because they know your liquidation points <laughs> and they're centralized and so many centralized exchanges have gotten hacked. So you don't have custody of your own crypto. So the decentralized exchanges are amazing. Let's see, what else am I really interested in? I'm only an advisor to a few things and I'm always interested in those. You know, I, you know, I'm, I know this is dangerously close to shilling the stuff that you own, but I mean, I only say yes to the things that I really believe in. Uh, Nexus Mutual, like insurance, although Nexus Mutual is not legally allowed to say that it is insurance. <laughs> uh, so it's not technically insurance. It is cover for, for things like for smart contracts, for uh, bugs. And I think that's a really interesting product and any mature ecosystem and immature as well, like needs, needs alternatives to insurance, you know, so that people can get involved with them and feel safe with their, with their money. Fixed rate is another big thing. So I'm an advisor to Element, but there's also like yield protocol as well. Those things are really cool. And, you know, I know that, like, like I said, a lot of people get involved in, in crypto because they think, you know, like they're going for these massive, you know, massive gains and they want to gamble. But I think it's also really cool to be able to put your money into like USDC on Element and get, you know, a 6% fixed return. That's incredible. I mean, banks these days in America offer like 0.15% or something insane which is losing money because then you get taxed on that 0.15%. So you're really getting like 0.1% after taxes and inflation is, you know, at least 2% and might be as high as 5% right now. So you're really losing a bunch of money by putting money savings account right now. So, you know, those things are all, all really cool primitives. That I think we'll see a lot more of in the future. And yeah, I'm also really, really um, bullish on, on Grid Plus. Um, you know, those guys are, are friends of mine, but they have a hardware wallet, which I think is, is just much better for Ethereum than any of the existing alternatives in terms of user experience. Of course, there is something to a hardware wallet needs to be around for a while for you to really feel confident in it. But it's now been around for a while, like almost a year, I think, and no hacks uh, that we know of. And it's, it's just a much, much better, not only user experience, but also like security because you actually know what you're signing, whereas you don't know what you're signing with Ledger or Trezor. And I think Ledger has actually added something in there 
but it's not the same. Like it's not. It's doing it in the front end. It's not actually doing it on your device. So it's it's not it's not secure. So yeah, I think like better hardware wallets is is certainly a need because I think Ledger is rested on its laurels a little bit, and you know this the experience of of Ledger is I don't know. I think it's it's terrible, and you know security record of Trezor is is not very good. So. You know, more hardware wallets is is pretty huge. As is like stuff like Argent, like these smart contract wallets uh, are also really important because bringing more people on and having better smart contracts is uh, or better better wallets for key management is really important. Yeah, I, I, that's interesting that you mentioned Element because uh, they were at Mainnet in New York this past week, and I was there too, or I guess earlier this week. And uh, yeah, our team was able to meet up with them and. I had to leave Wednesday when we actually got to meet up with them. But from what I heard, they were just super, super cool guys. Really awesome project. Uh, I think that's one that I'm, I'm pretty excited for uh, as well. And I guess on that note, I just got like a couple more questions for you and we'll let you go. Maybe I should, maybe I should be less long winded. <laughs> I'll try to be, I'll try to make it more, more pithy. No, you're great. No, it's, it, it's good content. Yeah. So like, I, I guess conferences are back. Are you, have you been, I in any conferences that you might go to? Uh, did you go to Bitcoin Miami? I, I don't think you were at Mainnet. Um, yeah, what's what's on your schedule for that? Yeah, so I look at my travel schedule in 2018 and 2019, and I'm sort of surprised that I survived because uh, I went to nearly every Ethereum conference. Uh, the only conference I've been to, basically post-pandemic, is ETHCC in Paris. And, and that was great, but, you know, I actually, like, look, I've been vaccinated. Uh, I went to the lunchroom and, you know, I basically had a cup of coffee or water in my hand at all points so that, like, I didn't have to wear a mask because, one, I don't like wearing a mask. <laughs> and, you know, that's why I got vaccinated. And two, uh I, it's just it was a weird experience to see people like even like like there was one person I talked to where I was talking to them for ten minutes and they clearly knew who I was but I had no idea who they were because they were wearing a mask you know and it like it's frustrating um, and uh, especially when people's appearances have changed over eighteen months you know like they don't shave their beard or they have long hair or you know whatever it is. Uh, yeah, it it, it was a, it was a weird experience for me. So I don't know. I'm not entirely sure what my travel schedule will be going forward. We'll see. Yeah. Well, being a Texan, uh, consensus will be in Austin in 2022, which I plan on going to. So hopefully, I'll see you there uh, also. So yeah, last thing is uh, where can people go to find out more about you and uh, what you're working on, Ethan, or a week in ETH news. Yeah, so the newsletter is weekinethereumnews.com. It is you know, relatively tech-focused. Uh, so it's, you know, I've, the Ethereum community has generally thought that Ethereum's future is essentially assured as long as developers are constantly building on Ethereum. So Week in Ethereum News is basically a tool for people that care about the tech, like developers, to be able to stay up to date and be sure they missed that didn't miss anything without, you know, having to be constantly on Reddit or Twitter all day. So that's weekendethereumnews.com. 
And, you know, my tweets, which are probably a little more market oriented, like most of this conversation, is at Evan underscore Van underscore Ness. And of course, I look forward to the day where we're not using Twitter because, you know, as much as I use Twitter, you know, they've locked me out of my account something like 10 times over the past couple of years without ever alleging me, alleging that I violated their rules and always eventually giving it back and unlocking it, but sometimes not for weeks. And, I, you know, in general, just Twitter, I so many things I think they could do better. And often when they make product updates, I feel like they ruin the experience. So, yeah, I'm looking forward to the day where I do not give you a Twitter handle as <laughs> the way to follow me. But for now, Twitter it is. Yeah, well, I, th- I think Stani at Ave has been hinting on Twitter quite a bit that he he's ready to make a competitor. So hopefully we'll get some sort of Twitter version on Ethereum someday. Yeah, there's another project in Stealth that has a working client that I've been using, and I'm I'm pretty excited about them. They're kind of taking it slow, and there's a few people I know that are that are building sort of Twitter competitors built on Ethereum, figuring out which layers they use for, you know, they put on Ethereum, what else they put elsewhere. And I think it's an idea that that's time has come, you know, say what you want about Donald Trump, whether you like him or, or hate him or love him or whatever. Um, but I still personally think it was kind of crazy that Jack Dorsey just decided that you know, he was going to cut the president of the United States off from his platform. (laughs) I don't personally think that like social media companies should have the power to censor, you know, willy nilly, whoever they want, you know, and it's pretty funny when they do it to the president of the United States. So I have a feeling that that is not an equilibrium that is going to last very long. Yeah, I, I kind of have that, that same feeling that, I mean, it's it's inevitable that a decentralized version of, you know, Facebook or Twitter eventually makes its way onto Ethereum. So, all right, well, that's we're kind of up on time now, but Evan, man, I really appreciate it. Always great to have another Texan on Conversations with the Co-op. And uh, yeah, I, I really appreciate it. Uh, the Index Co-op appreciates it. And we'll see you out there on Twitter. Thanks. Cheers. Thanks for having me. All right, bye. Bye.